welcome to the Healthy Gospel Church podcast, a podcast where we explore all aspects of church life while also shining a spotlight on good practice. My name is David Meredith, I'll be your host. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear, please help these algorithms out and share it as far and wide as you can. Folks, a very warm welcome to the latest edition of the Healthy Gospel Church podcast. And my guest today is in many ways from nearby, but also very far away, a friend and colleague, David Strain. David, welcome. It's great to be with you, David. Looking forward to it. Good. Now, lots of folk listening to the podcast will know who you are, but many folk will not. Um, like the Galileans, your accent does betray you. So could you just tell me, tell the folks a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, what sort of context you were raised, and maybe how you became a Christian? Yeah, so I was raised in the east end of Glasgow in a wee town called Carmyle, kind of a suburb of, uh, of Glasgow in a non-Christian family in the Church of Scotland. Um, was converted in... Uh, early high school um, through a Pentecostal friend who witnessed to me. And uh, um, in Dundee, where I went to art school for for university, I uh, met my wife who was at St. Peter's Free Church. And um, after that worked as I was a relay worker for UCCF and then trained for the ministry in the Church of Scotland and then came into the Free Church of Scotland um, in 2001, did a couple more years in Edinburgh, and then I was the Free Church Minister in London for about five years. Okay, I'm really interested in the part of your training, David. Um, we're, We're talking here about healthy gospel churches, and it seems to me that maybe I'm just getting old and, 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 and miserable, but uh, my first degree was English politics and then I did theology. Your first degree was in art, then you did theology. I think that general education is good. I think we're becoming too narrow. Can you have too much theology in your training? I don't think you can have too much theology, but I think you need other things as well. You know, I, th- I think you're right that it's, it's good to have a broad base. So... I studied fine art and we had to do art theory and philosophy and art history and uh, some of that. And, you know, art, studying fine art taught me how to think critically. It taught me how to ask interpretive questions. It taught me to think about worldview, taught me to think about how ideas uh, percolate through culture and shape artistic movements, shape the way we we function in in the world. And when I began to study theology, I found many of the skills, the the sort of intellectual disciplines that I'd been trained to develop uh, were very helpful uh, thinking to help me think theologically and exegetically in writing sermons and how to use language and the the interplay between uh, uh, commitments and creativity um, and that, that sort of thing. So, um, I, I would, I, you know, I would say to anybody who came to me and said, "I think I might be called to the ministry. Um, I'm a high school graduate. Should I start? Should I go to Bible college straight away um, and study study the New Testament?" I would say, "Well, you could do that, but why don't you go and study English? Study poetry. You know, go go study music or or social studies or history." 
and learn how to use words and how to think deeply and broadly. Um, and that will provide a, a foundation for um, a really healthy and well-rounded ministry later on. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, you know, just to try and get a broad education. And even, you know, some guys who's not been to university, I always say, go read books, read a decent newspaper. And I yeah. don't go read newspapers these days, I'm a bit old school, but uh, just try and get ideas. Because would you say, I mean, would you say, of course you'd say, you know, that Calvinism, if it's anything, it gives us a really good worldview. Have you found that? Certainly. I mean, I, Calvinism is to, is, is sort of a, a bit of a wax nose, you know, these days it's, everybody's a Calvinist, but I'm a reformed Christian beyond that. It's not just, you know, some reduction to five, five points yeah. and a, a fully orbed reformed view of the truth of God shapes how you think about every aspect of life and informs informs everything. And so, yeah, I mean, having um, a thoughtful engagement with art and literature and science and history from a reformed worldview is vital and actually maybe more important than ever, given the cultural shifts that are happening all around us. We need to be making disciples who are able to live uh, unapologetically Christian lives and yet engage meaningfully, intelligently in every sphere of life. And if we're going to equip people to do that, we need to know something about it ourselves as ministers. Going back to your upbringing, I mean, I hear a lot of conversion stories and testimonies, especially coming out of the, the South, that's your South, not, not my South. And they kind of go like this, you know, raised in a covenant home, uh, went to university, went to RUF, you know, all, all that stuff. There was no dramatic change. Now, that, that's absolutely fine. I, I think there's far too much emphasis on, on drama and dramatic conversionism. However, your upbringing wasn't in that context. It wasn't a different context. It's a little bit more secular. Uh, right. Would you say that that's impacted your your view of, of salvation and your your ministry? Well, I hope so. Actually, it's interesting you would say that. I, I was talking to one of our older uh, older pastors here, um, who's in his eighties and and serves amongst our senior uh, members, and who he was thanking me for what he perceives to be an evangelistic edge in all of my preaching. I don't know whether that's a fair assessment or not. I was encouraged that he thought that way, certainly. And that, that is certainly a burden of mine. And his point was that previous pastors all brought their own gifts and, and graces to bear, but they were all they all came from Christian backgrounds. And I've not come from a Christian background. And that note certainly comes out. And at least here in the American South, you know, there's this idea that we live in the Bible Belt, and that's true. But that that sort of that 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 layer of cultural Christianity is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. It's really a thin veneer now of um, of of vague religion that most people have, just enough to kind of keep keep Jesus at arm's length. 
And uh, I'm I'm really concerned that if the the church in the American South doesn't mobilize to reach society with the gospel and become aggressively evangelistic, um, five years from now, churches like mine, larger churches, are going to wake up, and there's going to be there's not not going to be anybody there. There's going to be a hundred people instead of twenty six hundred people, and we're going to be saying, "Where'd everybody go?" Yeah. Um, you know, the days are. If they're not over, they're shortly will be over in the American South when a crowd will attract a crowd and larger churches can just coast along and not without much effort just take over. We the church in, in the United States has has got to realize that we are now uh, the American situation is very different than the UK situation. And so there's there's always going to be this sort of encrustation of religion in America. Um, that that probably hasn't existed in Britain for a very long time, but we're still in a post-Christian context. It's, it just looks a bit different and feels a bit different. Um, but and I don't think that the evangelical church here is all that ready for that. Um, so, yeah, do you feel that? I mean. Although you're you're Scottish and you're very Scottish, you've never actually held a pastoral ministry in Scotland, but you've been in right. the UK. Yeah. Do you, do you feel in, in a sense that you've ministered in the future in terms of the US? You know, where you the context that you minister yeah. in is really where the US is going. And added to that, I mean uh, the Scottish folk are perhaps not familiar with churches like First Press Jackson, you know, big steeple American South churches. You know, 40 years ago, the nearest we would maybe have would be St. George's Tron, right. Eric Alexander there, packed city centre church. Right. These don't exist in Scotland anymore. I think what you're trying to say is, listen, 40 years on, you guys could be in a similar... So, so you know, common these two things that you ministered, you've oh. seen the future... And these big steeple churches can't take it for granted. That's right. And and I don't think it's 40 years. I think what, what's been interesting in the last uh, maybe 20 years has been the pace of change has accelerated in a way that, you know, what took 40 years in the UK has taken half that or even less in the United States. Um, and and that that has been a dizzying pace of change. And I suspect the pace of change has picked up in the UK as well. Um, I think that's it's accelerating across uh, the churches and across the religious landscape, certainly, if not across the cultural landscape in the West generally. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, big steeple churches in the United States can't, can't rely on uh, cultural Christianity to keep their doors open and the lights on and their ministry having at least the appearance of of a success, um, you know the day the days when you can just sort of be a preaching station um, and and gather a crowd from all over. Uh, that's not that's not going to cut it anymore. We actually, I don't think it was ever really faithful to the biblical mandate at any point in any place ever. Yeah. <laughs> not not to be too general about it. Uh, you know, we're we're told to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. We're we're told to go make disciples and and sitting in our comfortable, uh, you know, context surrounded by a crowd can 
take away some of the sense of urgency. And I'm I'm anxious that in our context we we realize how urgent our situation is because I, you know, I minister in London, in the city, the, the, the square mile of the city of London, it's the 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 most secular or at least the least Christian uh place in the United Kingdom. At least it was when I was there, I'm sure it's it's even more so now. Um, the highest percentage per capita of, of those who claim to be atheists uh, than any other place in the UK. Um, you know, really deeply secular place and very challenging. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I've glimpsed at least a version of the future. Um, but I've also been really encouraged, you know, watching the free church not sort of um, retreat from that challenge, but but do what it can to mobilize, to plant churches and and reach Scotland with the gospel has been thrilling to me. And I, I think in some ways the free church um, is a real challenge to the PCA and to other churches. You know, it's not about size and it's not about resources. It's really about vision and commitment and a zeal for the salvation of the lost. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our big aim is to be culturally relevant but also confessionally faithful and having said yep. that uh, I want to talk you you're bilingual you you're culturally bilingual I want to unpack that a little bit that I'm very conscious that when I talk about being culturally relevant and issues like social justice that when I say that I mean that our preaching's got to apply to contemporary society, not to Victorian Scotland. When I speak about social justice, I'm thinking of, you know, a heritage in Thomas Chalmers, um, Guffrey, the role of a church during the Highland Clearances, uh, a, a desire for, for, for a poor. Now, I'm conscious that sometimes that, that in, in the U.S., when folk talk about social justice and contemporary relevance, that they don't mean what I mean. So can you translate your context? Uh, yeah, I, I could get fired, but yeah, I'll try. Um, so so at the moment anyway, right, in the last, maybe in the last 10 years, even more in the last five years, if you say social justice in America, people assume you're talking about race. Okay, and and um, that that becomes a very complicated conversation in the United States uh, because of um, competing claims about how best to address racial injustice. I think everybody acknowledges that racial injustice is a real thing, a wicked and, and appalling reality. Um, and there are those uh, faithful Bible-believing Christians who believe that we should be able to use tools like critical theory um, to help us address those challenges. And others, equally faithful, uh, uh, conservative-minded Christians, who are horrified um, because some of the philosophical underpinnings of critical theory are uh, antithetical to Christian convictions. And that's a very live discussion. And it, it makes talking about the care of the poor actually really difficult to do. Uh, you know, 
regardless of where you fall on the mission of the church, and in my own judgment, the church's mission is fundamentally and narrowly spiritual as an institution, now as an organism, yeah. as as a as a as a, a group of people united to Christ, living out our faith every day. We have a mandate to be good neighbors and to care for the poor and to engage in every segment of society faithfully. And the church has to equip people to do that well. But what does the church as church, as institution, invest its time and energy and money in? It needs to be um, the, the, the conversion of the lost and the making of disciples. Um, so that, that's where I, I kind of fall personally. But even with that, you still have to acknowledge that the scriptures say that the that godliness and faithfulness individually and corporately as a Christian and as a church must have some sense of burden for the poor. The prophets are clear about that. that that's embedding that. the DNA of my denomination, which right. is right. strict subscription, confessionally robust, but yet embedded right. in that whole Thomas Chalmers, diacono care, social justice network. Right. right. And so the way, like at first prayer is the way we try to work this out is we have um, mercy ministry partners in the city that are engaged with the homeless and the poor and various levels of practical social need. We uh, try to send our people, we try to send our resources to work with people who have particular expertise in doing that. We do not feel the need as the church to reinvent the wheel and pretend that we are omnicompetent, you know, for every social problem out there. What we are looking for are, are, are partners that are effective in doing this, who have sort of laser-focused expertise in a particular area. And we want to say, do we have compatibility in terms of what we think the gospel is? Do these people want to share the good news as well as, as feed people and clothe them and, and, and help them? And if they do, we, we try to promote that and, and build really meaningful partnerships. We also recognize that the church sometimes has to be the incubator of new mercy ministry. And so, you know, if I'm aware of uh, this person over here who wants to help with an after-school club for illiterate children in the inner city, and I know of three or four other people with similar skills and similar burdens, we're going to try and get them together in our membership. Our diaconate might seed money, give some seed money. We might set up a 501c3, a charitable organization to help launch that. But it won't be run by our, our church. It will not be a direct ministry of First Presbyterian Church, at least not eventually. It might need to be at the beginning. So we want to be spinning off philanthropic and mercy ministry work. But we want to try and keep, while we're doing that, a really laser focus on our primary calling and responsibility, which is to preach the gospel, to reach the lost, to make disciples, and to worship God. So, so that's a that's a you know that's a bit of a dance because um, we want to do all of that. And uh, you know, I will say this: that I think I think mercy ministry can exercise a certain gravitational pull. You know, it's, it, we, I can get 50 people to sign up for, you know, a mercy ministry project like that. But if I say we're going to go and do some street evangelism or we're going to go and do some evangelism training and then we're going to run Christianity Explored, it's like pulling teeth. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I get that. Mercy, if I can paint a wall or feed somebody, it's an immediate 
you know, it's an immediate emotional payoff. I've done something tangible that's really made a difference. I can see it. Hasn't really, I haven't had to risk much to do that. I haven't had to, I'm not exposed to the possibility of shame or embarrassment or rejection. But the minute I have to say to you, listen, you're a sinner <laughs> and me too, right? Yeah. And, and this is, sin brings us under the judgment of God, but God in his mercy has provided a way of salvation in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you about him. As soon as I have to do that, that gets a little scary. It gets challenging for people. And, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to affirm the need to do mercy ministry while resisting the gravitational pull that makes mercy ministry swallow evangelism. So a lot of PCA churches now, when you ask them what outreach do they do, they'll list a ton of really effective, creative, compassionate mercy ministry. And then I say, but where are you telling people about Jesus? And how are you training people to tell people about Jesus? And they sort of look at their feet and and uh, wonder, you know, is is that the time? Is it time for me to go and make an excuse and avoid it? And so there's a real challenge there. I mean, what I'm passionate about is a kind of simple view of the church. If the church was was a business, our our core business is proclamation of the word, the sacraments, prayer. You know that that right. that's our core business. That's what we do. Right. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, the one of the greatest misnomers I ever hear is the phrase ordinary means of grace. Because the means of grace, David, are not ordinary. They are extraordinary. They are supernatural. They are powerful. But I guess I'm preaching to the choir with, with, with you here. Um, yeah. How can we make or, the ordinary means of grace? When I hear that, very often it, it's a code. It's a code word for dialogue, inspiring. Yeah. How, how can we transform that ordinary means of grace concept to something more dynamic and less ordinary? Um, you, you know, churches really like any group of people, um, you, you end up with buzzwords that we use to sort of signal a whole body of ideas. There's nothing really wrong with that. And it's fine. Ordinary means of grace, that's confessional language that comes outward and ordinary means comes straight out of our confession and catechisms. And there's something value about the word ordinary there too, because at least in my context, maybe in yours, people are always looking for the extraordinary. They're always looking for the shock and the awe and the next big thing, and where are we going to get a buzz from? And if you start feeding people with that, you've got to keep it up. You've got to keep outdoing yourself with still more pizzazz, you know, and electricity. And, and actually, it's killing us. It's, it's making us stupid. It's making us lazy. Um, it's making us misunderstand where spiritual vitality comes from. It, it's, not a, it's not a quick fix buzz. It comes from the word and actually trying to figure out what in the world the text means and what difference does it make. That requires some patience and some work and some effort. And it's it's very ordinary, a talking head unpacking a 2,000-year-old book, little bits of bread and wine, some water sprinkled on a baby's head. That's it. Really, that's your strategy to advance the kingdom of God, to topple the kingdom of Satan, to see people pass from death to life. That's the plan. Yeah, that, that's the plan. Those are the tools. 
the Lord Jesus has given to the church. And, you know, the, the church, we need to stop running away from ourselves. You know, we're, we're, it's like, well, we know we have these, but we don't, we don't really believe that the promise of God that attaches to the means of grace uh, is true. Not really, functionally, because yes, we do the means of grace, but we need something else, some other hook to, to pack them in. Um, whether that's great classical music or great contemporary music or, you know, a stand-up comedian on a platform instead of a preacher um, or, you know, whatever whatever the foolishness might might be. We... There's a simplicity and an, an honesty about it. And, and actually, when you talk to non-Christians, um, they see right through all the gimmicks and the tricks, and they're so unimpressed by it. And, and they already think that religious people are, are out to manipulate them. But that's their starting default position. They think, you know, what are you selling and what do you want out of me? And are you trying to hoodwink me or, or, or somehow manipulate me? So let's not, let's not try. Let's be who we really are. Some years ago, Tom Rayner wrote a book called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, where he surveyed people who had recently come to church, who had been unchurched or dechurched. And the number one thing that people talked about as the, the reason they came to church and stayed was effective preaching that explained the Bible faithfully and clearly and spoke to their hearts and lives and consciences. Not, you know, not, not gimmicks, not, not tricks, not trying to look as much like the world as possible and slip Jesus in the back door, just straightforward honesty and genuineness and, and kindness and Christian community that cares for you when you walk in the door. That's that's the real thing with preaching that that says this, we really believe the Bible is the very word of God. And that changes everything. And if you listen to it, it will change you too. And yeah. look around you and you see a bunch of people that are living examples of that happening right in front of your eyes. Yeah. I mean, in Scotland, I mean, the stats are, are not, Phenomenal, but the churches that are growing are, you know, conservative evangelical churches that are big and, and preaching. The churches that are declining are kind of social justice and green uh, agenda churches. Because you know, if you want a green agenda, you know, Greenpeace can do it better than the church can, and Oxfam do social justice better than, than the church do. Um, yeah, we've got one thing and one string in our banjo. <laughs> You know, why, why are we trying to do what everybody else is doing and they do it better when the one unique contribution the church has is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Let's, I mean, let's be loud and urgent and vigorous with that because that's our unique thing. That's the one thing we've got that nobody else has. Yeah, I mean, I say that to churches all the time here in Edinburgh. The Sikhs do a great food kitchen, you know. There's yeah. and the the Muslims do phenomenal stuff in terms of, of food. You know, nobody can crack a curry like these guys, uh, you know. But they can't talk about Jesus, and that's, that's yeah. Okay, David, 
we're, we've got this strap line as a denomination, you know, a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. Mm. Can you just, when you hear that phrase, healthy gospel church, yep. you know, if I were to ask you, David, you give me three marks of a healthy gospel church, mm. what, would, what would these be? Well, we've already been talking about some of them. So, so number one has to be um, robust, uh, a straightforward, plain, clear, urgent, pleading, evangelistic, expositional preaching, um, and uh, with a with a with a pastor who's on fire with enthusiasm and love for Christ and His people. Uh, if you've got that, you might not have much else, but that's compelling. That's compelling. Um, I, you know, I used to say, I like to say to my interns, you know, the the preacher is meant to be God's visual aid. Yeah. You don't, you don't need stop fooling around with with video clips and PowerPoint. It's just a distraction. When you lose the power and never get to the point, and people are just, you know, what's that picture he's got up? Is that? Yoda, what is that? You know, nobody's listening to what you're saying. They're looking at the pictures. And but if you're on fire and gripped with what you yourself are saying because it's got a hold of your heart and it's it's stirring your conscience, that's compelling to the people that are listening to you as well. Preach, I think, preach to the capacity of your hearer. Let them you know speak to the people in front of you, not the people you wish were in front of you. And um uh, you know the, the the people that you're really serving uh, talk their language, but preaching is is number one. Um, I, I think a congregation that loves one another and prays together is number two. So I'm kind of blending maybe community and prayer are two and three. Uh, um, I'm not necessarily ranking these in order. I don't suppose. Um, community. You know, we, when you think about the church that was planted in Philippi, you've got you've got Lydia, you've got the Roman jailer and his family, you've got the slave girl from whom Paul drove out the the demons. That's you know these are these are three groups of people that have absolutely no business wanting to be together. And the gospel makes them family. It makes them a church. And I, sometimes I think, especially in our older churches, our you know our traditional churches have been around for a long time. Um, there's a certain institutionalization that happens, and so the doors are open, so people show up, and we do our thing, and then we go home. And it's you know community takes focused effort. We need to pursue each other. We need to practice hospitality. One of the great weaknesses of the American church that is not a weakness in the free church is Lord's Day hospitality. Uh, in, in America, people rarely open their homes to each other. Everyone wants to go out to eat somewhere, but no, nobody wants to have you in their house. It feels very, to Americans, that's very intrusive and um. Uh, sort of, they're very uncomfortable with that. Whereas in Britain, you know, I remember as a student in church, people were just sort of competing to to get folks to come to their house. And you'd stay all day, you'd have a feast, you'd go for a walk, 
he'd go back to church at night and then there would be somebody else's house after that. And the a lot of what the American church tries to programatize with small groups and other things, which are really valuable, we do them and I love them, uh, happens organically when you have real hospitality, people opening their homes, opening their lives with each other, being honest and real about, you know, this is me, this is my house, this is my mess. You know, we've made enough. Come and join us. You're welcome. It's not fancy. And and that is so impactful. It's so incredibly impactful. And and something to to prize and cherish in in the free church and, and build on that practice of hospitality that builds meaningful community. Because people are desperate for that and they can't find it anywhere. Loneliness is an epidemic in in Britain and in the United States. And um, the church provides not just a, a, you know, a, a sort of formal place where community can happen, but actually profound, real spiritual bonds that, that doesn't exist anywhere else. So that's vital. And then, and then prayer. Um, prayer meetings in America are almost like dinosaurs or dodos. You know, you, they're almost extinct. Um, and I, I don't have any particular model of a prayer meeting in mind. You know, there's the old, really old traditional where the, 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 the deacon stands up and prays for 15 minutes. And, and uh, But there's other ways to do that in smaller groups. And, in you know, you can break it up and have different seasons of prayer themed around different things and have corporate prayers and individual uh, prayers and small group prayers all in the same meeting and keep it really moving and vibrant. But the church has to pray. There, there's no no prospect of life or vitality or health. If we do everything else right, but we don't pray, that tells us that, that a real posture of dependence on the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit is absent. We can plan and strategize all day long but if we don't, if we're not a praying church, it's a lost cause. We may as well shut the door, you know, and let somebody else have a go. Because we we must we must do ministry in a posture of dependence on Jesus. It's His work and not ours in the end, and and that that shows up in the life of the church when we pray. And and we've got to do more than an organ recital when we get into a prayer meeting. You know, praying for people's broken body parts. Uh, we need to pray for the advancement of the kingdom. We need to pray for the work of the gospel in the local church, nationally and internationally. We need to pray for the conversion of the lost. It's interesting in prayer meetings, I hear people praying a lot for their unconverted friends and they pray for opportunities to share the gospel and they pray that they would really listen. Um, but they don't pray, Lord, take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. You know, we, we need to help and teach our people to pray for all of those things, but pray for conversions, pray for change, pray for actual new birth. And uh, because that's what we want to see. And yeah. why should we expect it if we don't ask for it? You have not because you ask not. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear stories. I remember once hearing through W.P. Nicholson, um, you know, his landlady heard him praying fervently. There's an amusing element to the story. She went up and she found his sheets ripped. And that was because he was so t- 
taken up with God that he just just passion. Yeah. I think we'd forgive a few ripped sheets if we had that. And right. even the, the vocabulary of evangelicalism, David, I don't know in your context, I'm not hearing folk talking about lostness. I'm not right. hearing preaching about hell. I'm not hearing uh, you know that that language of urgency. Yeah, uh, used to mark, and again, I hope I'm not getting nostalgic, but but it certainly marked my even in CU circles uh, as a a young student. You know, you would hear folk pleading for the lost. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, some of that I think is like many changes in the church is actually often motivated by an evangelistic concern. Mm, as an um, young, you know, the the. There's a feeling, there's a mood that um, because of the cynicism of our secular society, particularly toward religion, if we're too hot and, and too urgent and too passionate and too emotional, it's going to turn people off. So what you want is a dispassionate, um, uh, sort of apologetic fireside chat. You, you, you want a... You want a a sort of low emotion, high intellect discussion um, that is stimulating and thought provoking, and a sort of exegetical TED talk yeah. kind of flavor. And and there's no doubt. I mean, Tim Keller is the is the master of that. And actually, you know, Tim does that with passion, and he's not just this cerebral, dry, dispassionate professor. I've heard him get urgent and pleading as well. But but he is a master at this sort of apologetic, um, evangelistic um, message to, you know, suburban Manhattanites or urban Manhattanites. And, uh, and he does that brilliantly, and the Lord has blessed that ministry in the most extraordinary ways. But there, he has many, many imitators who do not have his gifts, um, and and I'm often left listening to sermons thinking, I don't know if this guy really wants, is all that concerned about whether I believe what he's saying or not. Yeah, there, yeah we have examples. No. I mean, I think of the preachers when I listened to when I was young, Eric Alexander, Donald McLeod, Douglas McMillan, right. um, you know, the Philip brothers, they, yep. these, these were, were pleaders. Now, it wasn't just you know, grand-style theatricals. Um, you know, these guys were really engaging people. Yep. And we, we certainly missed that. You know, we're turning into almost, like I've said this before, Sandemanians, where the church right. is a mere lecture hall. Listen, we could talk all day, David, but uh, we, we are running out of time. So thank you so much for giving me Pleasure. your time. Yep. Uh, folk who are listening to this maybe met David here for the first time Google First Presbyterian Jackson Mississippi there's Jacksons everywhere um, there's Jackson Mississippi and get in touch with the work of First Pres and David's excellent preaching ministry David we wish you every blessing thank in you First Pres and in the PCA and thank you for giving us your time thanks very much thank you